know, me and my boys, we chew up towns like this. That's so? Oh, yeah. That tells me something. What? You haven't been through this town before. I won't make you so damn sure of that. Because this little town would ruin those pearly white teeth of yours. You can't dance. That would be the biggest mistake you made all day. Now get out of town. This ain't over yet, sucker. It better be. You wish. getting really mad. I know, that's why I ran them off before you really got riled. I saw it on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, subscribe, give us a favorable review. We are drawing to a close our August theme. The awkward, wait, what? That's our selection of some great, head-scratching cult classics that are sure to make you pause, and then hopefully run out to your local purveyor of video media and take in these bizarre happenings. This week, we screen the genre-bending horror-action kung-fu comedy, 1982's cult classic, Silent Rage. Join us! So if last week's film was the most awkward and uncomfortable of this month's lot, I can at least say with some certainty that this week's film is the most fun of the group if not the most schizophrenic. This was, yet again, a film that I was introduced to long after I had left college, and, once more, it was introduced to me through the mighty Xerxes. After we had gone out, grabbed a hearty meal of an Angus cheeseburger with some thick-cut steak fries, he announced that we were going to go back and watch something fun. And he was indeed correct. This was a film that was all over the place, a complete mismatch of genres and pacing, but still ever so watchable. And what's more, 
it starred a certain Mr. Chuck Norris, which I know will cause some of you listening to pump your fist and salute to old Chaz, but I gotta freely admit, I myself am not a Chuck Norris fan. Now, let me at least put that into some context. For the record, I don't hate Chuck Norris. I personally abhor his individual politics, and I would rather watch paint dry than sit through an episode of Walker, Texas Ranger. The cogent flip side to all that is neither of those two things have to affect how I, as a rational human being, enjoy cinema that he's been a part of. I do actually like a good portion of Norris's 80s work, especially when he was working at Canon. I grew up seeing him on the small screen in the days of video. There's stuff to like out there. And Norris basically had had sort of a renaissance in the early 2000s as the 80s came back into vogue, and as those famous Chuck Norris internet memes started to circulate ad nauseum. Oh, you aren't familiar? Well, believe me, they had dozens upon dozens, popularized by the drunken subgenre of frat tire that dominated the mid-aughts. <clears throat> Here's a couple. Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. Too bad Chuck Norris has never cried. The dark is afraid of Chuck Norris. The quickest way to a man's heart is with Chuck Norris's fist. And actually, one that I kind of like. Chuck Norris can divide by zero. I know, they're corny. They make your eyes roll. They're dad jokes. But they were effective and can be enjoyed in the right state of mind. So, I guess, here, let's start from the start. Why do we even have this film, and how does Norris even get a career? Carlos Ray Norris was born March 10th, 1940, in Ryan, Oklahoma the son of Ray D. Norris, a trucker and sometimes mechanic, and Wilma Norris, a housewife. His early life was not a happy one. The oldest of three brothers, the family would often have to deal with the very real problem of Ray D. Norris's raging alcoholism, which crippled the family financially and caused the youth nothing but hardship as he grew. Carlos was quiet, painfully shy, and worse, a poor student. Not even a good athlete. At the age of 18, with limited options, he voluntarily joined the Air Force, and in 1958, he found himself serving in the military police, stationed in South Korea. It's during this time of his service years that young Norris found himself actually getting interested in martial arts, training initially in the Korean discipline of Tan Sudo. His time in the service also earned him the nickname Chuck, and as he tells it, it's stuck ever since. After serving in the military for four years, Air Policeman Norris found himself honorably discharged in 1962, and he quickly assumed that he would be parlaying his work as a military police officer into one of a civilian role, applying to work for the Torrance Police Department in California. The problem? Like most decent jobs, there was a waiting list. 
and in need of income, Norris decided to make his martial arts hobby pay for him, and he opened a small studio to give lessons, still with every intention of going into law enforcement. During this time, he would compete in tournaments on the national scene, and by the late 1960s, he had racked up some impressive wins, competing and winning the All-American Karate Championship of 1967, and then coming back and doing it again in 1968. It was during these competitions that Norris crossed paths with martial artist and actor Bruce Lee, and the two would actually go on to have a personal and professional relationship. Norris now had some Hollywood connections, and with national wins to bolster his resume. In 1969, he was cast in a small role in the Dean Martin Matt Helm film, The Wrecking Crew. You you may know it. You see, it's a uh, it's that film that Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate goes to see herself in the Quentin Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, that one. Chuck Norris is in that one. His relationship with Lee paid off two more times. First, with his casting as one of the villains in Lee's 1972 The Way of the Dragon. That gave Norris a lot of exposure. The second part is a little more tragic. You see, with Lee's passing due to complications of cerebral edema the following summer in 1973, Norris ended up taking in a lot of Lee's celebrity students. Students like Steve McQueen, who along with James Garner and James Coburn had been training with Lee and were now still looking to continue with their practice of martial arts. Lee got Norris into the movies, but it would be his friendship with Steve McQueen that would actually get him into acting. Queen's encouragement, Norris would start to take classes, study the craft of acting, and continue to get roles. And believe me, it was the right time for it. Action films that utilized martial arts, and in particular, the exploitation genre of Bruceploitation, was just exploding, and such films were viewed as very quick, and even better, cheap ways to make profits. Therefore, studios cranked out a host of low-budget martial arts pictures. And what the studios liked was, in Norris, they had a unique angle. He's a white American who can fight, and better yet, he's now received acting lessons. And so, Norris found himself cast in his first starring role. That would be in 1977, through independent director Don Hewlett, in the film Breaker Breaker, which managed to mash the CB trucking craze of the late 1970s. Uh, I see examples such as Smokey and the Bandit, Convoy, The Great Smoky Roadblock, with action and kung fu. With a small budget of just $250,000, the film was shot in 11 days, and then it made its debut in May of 1977 where it grossed a cool 12 million. Norris was on his way. Working with small independent productions, Norris spent the next four years delivering very bankable and profitable performances, proving that he was indeed a box office draw. He made The Good Guys Wear Black in 1978, A Force of One in 1979, 
the octagon in 1980, and an eye for an eye in 1981. Norris was on fire. So it now seemed to be the perfect time for a major studio to come calling and attempt to cash in on his newfound fame. Columbia Pictures had a story that they had tailor written for Norris, and they wanted him to have a hit with them. Enter director Michael Miller. Miller was an ambitious director who was coming off working for Roger Corman. Seriously, who didn't work for Roger Corman? And with New World Pictures, Miller had started cutting his teeth on low-budget, exploitative, sleazy dramas. You know, dramas like 1975's Street Girls, which, interestingly, was written by the great Barry Levinson. And of course, the grim 1976 crime drama Jackson County Jail, which starred a young Yvette Mimieu, Tommy Lee Jones, Robert Carradine, and, really, Howard Hessman. Miller was tapped by Columbia producer Paul Lewis, who had enjoyed his previous work, and thought he would be great on this next Norris picture. They had gotten writer Joseph Fraley to pen a script, and they leaned heavy into what was currently stupendously popular, the slasher genre. They wanted Chuck Norris to use his kung fu antics, yeah, I, I know he doesn't really do kung fu, to make a strange hybrid that could be enjoyed by a wider audience who didn't normally go to a typical slasher movie, but they would go to a Chuck Norris movie. There were really two problems with this approach. First, director Miller read the script and thought, this really shouldn't be a slasher film. He himself didn't really care for them. What he wanted to do was play up the sci-fi horror angle and use the concept of a man who had been changed by medical science to be nigh indestructible. He would make a real, modern interpretation of the Frankenstein's monster. It would be horror, but it would be, you know, air quotes, good horror. So he decided he was going to shoot and frame the film that way. The second problem. Chuck Norris really wasn't keen on the script. Like, at all. He himself did not care for slashers, and he didn't really like horror films. So, up until this point, he had played a good guy in action movies. This seemed to be a real dark departure from all of his previous work. As director Miller would state in a 2016 interview with ComingSoon.net, Norris was only there because this was a major studio film. He wasn't going to tell the people that it was junk, but he wasn't attached to this project because he really believed in the story or he thought he was doing important work. Now, that's not to say Norris didn't get anything actually else out of this arrangement. Silent Rage would be the first film that Norris's own production company, Topkick Productions, would actually produce. And he brought in both his younger brother, stunt coordinator and co-producer Aaron Norris on board, and he then got his 20-year-old son, Mike Norris, hired on to be a production assistant on the film. Good script or bad script, this was going to be a payday for the Norris family. For casting, actor Brian Libby was tipped off to the project simply by being a friend of Aaron Norris's. But Miller liked his face and his style, and compared him to being reminiscent of a young Lee Marvin. His face, his mannerisms, he could play a real deranged man in the character of John Kirby. 
exemplifying Miller's dreams of having that, quote, new Frankenstein. Actress Todi Kalem was cast as Allison, who would be Norris's love interest for the picture, and the great August character actors were brought in as a team of scientists. You have here Stephen Keats, who, as you recall, was featured on Our Friends of Eddie Coyle and, even better, The Last Dinosaur. You have Ron Silver of The Entity fame, and you have the great William Finley of Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. They are all a treat here as these brilliant men who are blinded by their ambition. Truly, the one bit of really strange casting that also adds a real misplaced layer of slapstick to this entire project was Stephen First being cast as Charlie, the well-meaning but bumbling deputy who works for Norris as sheriff. His was a selection that was purposely made as a choice by Miller. With a budget of $4.5 million, the production moved to Dallas, Texas, and began shooting over the summer of 1981, beginning in mid-June and wrapping by mid-July. Production went smooth. Most of the cast and crew have actually fond memories of the work, and the general consensus was the bar brawl scene was the toughest sequence for them to shoot. They had to stage it each and every day, installing the breakaway glass, and then prepping for the very costly and timely motorcycle shot where it all goes through the window and the wall in one fluid take, as well as taking the time then to decommission everything, and to get all of the coverage scenes for the actual fight. The entire brawl sequence itself ended up being a four-day shoot alone, but if you ask Miller, it was a great scene to use, both Norris and Furston, and it was well worth it. But okay, man, you've been really patient. So why don't I stop all this jawjacking and I just get us to the trailer? What do you say? Columbia Pictures presents Chuck Norris. Hot damn riders! You call the police? Not me, boss. Nobody call the police. You must be a marauder. Ah! Master fighter of our time. But not even he could imagine the power of the indestructible man he is about to face. A creation of science whose only thought is to survive. The unstoppable terror of silent rage. Now, Chuck Norris must destroy him. Damn watch out! In a final battle to the death. In an unassuming Texas town, a mentally ill man by the name of John Kirby, as played by Libby, calls his doctor Tom Hallman, as played by Silver, in a panic, claiming that he, quote, just can't take it anymore. As his doctor tries to reason with him, 
Kirby begins to zone out and lose focus with what the physician is actually telling him. Instead, he trains his focus on the woman who runs the boarding house he's staying in, who at the moment is currently yelling at her children to quit causing such a ruckus. Kirby walks past her and proceeds to go out into the yard and retrieve an axe. Returning inside in a fugue state, he proceeds to kill a fellow tenant before then turning and murdering his landlady in cold blood. Her screams are heard from up the block by the neighborhood mail carrier, who contacts Sheriff Dan Stevens, as played by Norris, and his deputy, Charlie, as played by First. They come to investigate, and, finding Kirby, a brief tussle ensues. And, with some chasing and the use of a 2 by 4 Stevens is actually able to subdue and cuff Kirby, at least until backup arrives. While Stevens is trying to ascertain exactly what happened, Kirby, still in a fit of rage, manages to break free from his handcuffs and overpowers an officer, taking away their shotgun and attempting to level it at the sheriff. And yet, he is cut down in a hail of gunfire before he really has time to act. His body is rushed off to the nearby medical institute, barely clinging to life. At the institute, Dr. Hallman and his colleagues, Dr. Philip Spears, as played by Keats, and geneticist Dr. Paul Vaughn, as played by Finley, work on the rapidly dying Kirby. Knowing the man is beyond saving and pointing out that his mental health issues are suspect, Hallman wants to throw in the towel, but Spears suggests they try another approach. Come on, Silver Phil. The man's dead. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's coming back. Increase the unit count. Make it 50,000. Phil, what are you talking about? Look what the mitogen's doing to his brain pattern. This isn't right. This is illegal and this is immoral. We have a vegetable laying here on the table that was a human being with a mind as well as a body. Was this where you're going to start talking to me about souls and playing God? Now, I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking to you about. We don't know what the formula is going to do to this man's mind, Phil. Will you do me a favor? Will you look at that? Look, this guy's mind was unbalanced to begin with. Phil, I'm telling you. I said, let this man die in peace. You guys want to flip a coin or something? Hallman is obviously not on board, wisely pointing out, you don't want to give extraordinary regenerative abilities to someone who is both violent and as mentally ill as John Kirby. 
and he flat out refuses. Vaughn quietly agreeing with him. Spears comes around, though, agreeing that it's something they can wait on, and tells Hallman that he's right, only to inject Kirby with the prototype serum after his colleagues leave. Stevens comes to the Institute, both to receive a bit of minor medical care and to inquire on Kirby's status. Uh, He's told Kirby has actually died on the table, but it's right there where he runs into his old flame. Allison Hallman, as played by Tony Clem. She's Doc Hallman's sister. What are the odds in a small town like this? Her reaction to, you know, seeing her old boyfriend? It, it's just a little bit contrived. I got along just fine these past six years without you. Five years? Five and a half, thank you very much. I mean, if you still think that I'm the same starry-eyed little innocent I was then, you're sadly mistaken. Look! There's no way you're going to break my heart again, you understand? So, so don't even try talking me into going to bed with you again for all time's sake, because you don't have a snowball's chance in hell. So naturally, that's exactly what happens. Now that we officially have romance rekindled, we get a strange B-plot about some rough bikers causing trouble for both the sheriff and Charlie. First in a local diner, and then later we run into them again at the town bar. Stevens ends up taking on about 30 bikers in a brawl, and of course he comes out on top, with Charlie being around for just comic relief. Stevens also finds more time to have even more romantic interludes with Allison. The two of them think it's very important that they get away for a while and spend some time together off, you know, in the sheriff's cabin for the weekend. And while the sheriff is busy with all his canoodling, Hallman and Vaughn are being shown by Spears all of the great progress that's been made on what he now thinks is the, quote, brain-dead body of Kirby. You cut him, he heals instantly. You stab him, same. Put bullets in him, the wounds simply close. It's a miracle. I hope that's not John Kirby. It's not. I mean, not really. See for yourself. Go ahead. Okay, so what the hell Scars is this? Scars that would we... take months to heal. Scars that would be permanently evident. Healed in 18 hours without a trace. I mean, his internal organs heal faster than that once we increase the dosage. We have the x-rays, you can see him. I mean, he's got the internal organs of a 20-year-old boy. Watch this. the dosage to 5 million units per hour. The natural healing process has been accelerated until it is almost immediate. He's still on life support, though, right? How is he? Oh, my God. We have living proof that our formula works. Think of it, Tom. Bones will mend. Wounds will heal. Disease is cured. Now tell me, isn't that worth everything? Anything. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, before we go to Stockholm and pick up the Nobel Prizes, I want him through the whole works, okay? Sure. It's indeed miraculous. They will all be famous, but there's just one problem. John Kirby isn't brain dead. He's been rendered mute, but he's still violent and still a crazed individual. And he has taken it personally that Dr. Hallman wanted to let him die. Kirby ends up following Hallman home and attacks him. And although Hallman shoots Kirby multiple times, he just keeps coming, ends up killing the good doctor, and unfortunately doing the same to Mrs. Hallman when she stumbles upon them. When Dan and Allison pull up to the Hallman residence to fetch a few of her things for their long weekend plans, she discovers the bodies of her brother and sister-in-law, and rightly so, loses her mind. Dan catches sight of a blood-covered Kirby fleeing the scene, but he needs to get Allison some help, so they head back to the Institute. Charlie meets them there, and he's instructed to guard Allison, while Stevens heads over to the coroner's office to try to locate the death certificate for John Kirby, trying to piece together why he witnessed a dead man running away from a crime scene. Good news for everyone, though. You see, Kirby went back to the Institute as well, seemingly to have resumed his place back on the gurney as if he had never left. Spears and Vaughn hear about the death of their colleague, and both men know that John Kirby was behind it. Spears begins to regret his arrogance, but Vaughn casually thinks they can solve this. You know, just using an injection of some potent acid into Kirby to counteract all of those healing abilities. Thus, it'll kill him permanently. Great idea if it worked. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Vaughn finds himself equally killed brutally with his own syringe by now a very angry Kirby. Spears finds Vaughn's body and then goes to his office to have a drink, where he encounters a very revved up and hulking Kirby. He does try to reason with him, tell him about how wonderful this all is and how he can be a shining achievement, but Kirby brutally breaks the doctor's neck in response. I've been expecting you. John, I made history. We did it. And I'm the only one left who knows how we did it. Kirby then goes on a wild tear through the Institute, attacking and killing the night staff. Doctors, nurses, you know, like you do. Charlie selflessly performs his duty, protecting Allison and attempting to stop Kirby's rampage. But the killer just can't be put down, and in turn, he breaks Charlie's back, leaving him to painfully die. Stevens returns and shoots Kirby before he can harm Allison, and the two flee the scene in the sheriff's car 
with the indestructible man giving chase, leaping onto their vehicle and smashing his way in as they attempt to drive. Both Dan and Allison roll from the car, which in turn crashes and delivers us one of those well-placed movie explosions. The couple's relief turns to horror as they witness a flaming John Kirby rise up and in turn extinguish his entire body in a small pond before he resumes his attempt to murder them both. Sheriff Stevens is forced into a knockdown, drag-out fight with a man who doesn't seem to react to pain or stop when he receives blows. Stevens is only able to, quote, win the battle by eventually forcing the murderous Kirby backwards and causing him to fall through a boarded-up well, seemingly killing him at last. The exhausted sheriff and his lady friend slowly walk away as the camera begins a long pan down the well and into the water. It's there, in a single hideous move, Kirby explodes up and out of the water, and we freeze frame on his face as he angrily gasps for air, still very much alive. Credits roll. Man, where do we even begin? How do we even begin? This is a film that seemingly doesn't know whether it's coming or going. And part of that is due to being a melange of genre here on display. It's a slasher film. It's a science fiction film. It's got martial arts. It's got some very out-of-place comedy. And it's all served up in a heaped, jumbled mess. It honestly can be hard to get a handle on viewing it if one is not in the right frame of mind. For example, if you told me you absolutely loved martial arts films, this would not be at the top of my list of something to recommend to you. Not because it's bad, but more like, yeah, there may be a solid 10 minutes of some martial arts action in here total. Rather, I would tell someone who is looking for something, quote, interesting or different, those are the people that you suggest this movie to, because they'll walk into it with at least more of an open mind, not looking for something specific. But no matter. Let's start off with some of what makes this both good and bad. And that all comes from the weird, odd, comedic B-story arc with Stephen First as the bumbling Deputy Charlie. Look, it's put in like it's almost bad sitcom writing. Charlie's inept in his duties. He almost accidentally shoots the sheriff a la Barney Fife. He's clearly rather cowardly. He's out of shape. He's shown to be prone to overeating. It's very notable when he's at the diner, he orders two full burger meals, you know, plates of burgers and fries for himself. He's easily manipulated by the biker mama into letting them get away with things just through mild flirtation. And it's painfully obvious that he's completely out of his element. This would all be Bush League comedic relief at best, but in the hands of a character actor like Stephen First, it actually kind of works here. What is strange, however, is Charlie ends up telling this really tragic story about a childhood dog freezing to death in an accident, and it's played for laughs. It's so confusing, it comes out of left field, and oddly, according to director Miller, that was all from first. He just wanted to ad-lib some conversation in the car with Norris. And apparently, for some ghoulish reason, they liked it and kept it into the film. What the hell is going on? In spite of it all, First is really bringing 
a great performance to a thankless task. You know, you would expect it from the man who gave us Flounder and Animal House, and he doesn't fail to please, and he does get, you know, the occasional smile and or errant chuckle out of people when he's on the screen. I guess it's needed to have some kind of levity, but his involvement is really just an odd way to shoehorn in all of the strange biker interactions, because they have no real purpose to further the plot. It's almost just there to pad out the film and to allow Chuck Norris the opportunity to beat up 30-something-odd tough guys in a bar brawl. If nothing else, it lets you know how high the stakes are. Sheriff Stevens can beat up these 30 tough bikers, but he can't take on this one indestructible man. Who's gonna win? Still, we of course have to have the, you know, swaggering, arrogant Charlie trying to assert his dominance over a bunch of unruly bikers, and of course, failing miserably in the attempt. Honestly, an effect that makes me smile. Very similar to previous science tropes that we've seen in other films of the day, uh, such as in Westworld or Demon Seed. Whenever you see, quote, scientific stuff happening in the background on the screen, all the computer processes that are supposed to be showing DNA and or biological changes, the image they always show is a series of crystallization processes occurring, you know, slow-mo, different colored lights swapping out at random intervals while we watch a snowflake start to slowly form or even watching like sugar solidify. It, it's a great effect, but always the days before CGI, I, I love it when they try to like explain to you like you're looking at something natural happening within the human body and it clearly is not. Now, I would be completely derelict in my duty if I did not mention the part, or I should say technically parts of this film that thus far have consistently elicited peals of laughter from those who I have shared it with. And I am talking, of course, about the Chuck Norris love scenes. This was the first time that Chuck Norris was given a part that would require him to star in a love scene, and he was very uncomfortable and uneasy with the entire process. Now, to add insult to injury, Director Miller took Norris and Callum aside and told them, improvise. You know, just have fun, you guys. What we are left with is, <laughs> excuse the pun, some of the stiffest, most pained-looking interactions between two people one can see in a major studio release. And that is just the first instance of Sheriff Dan and Allison's rekindling their romance. Later, about halfway through the film, we get another love scene, but this one is filmed in a montage style, which has the couple shown enjoying themselves in various locations, all around, by the way, a very modern and spacious house for a cop to be able to afford. And in every single transition shot, no matter where the couple are, on the deck, 
in the hammock on a couch in the bedroom, there is a breakfast tray loaded with grapes, apples, wine, cheese that follows them, always untouched, but always in the shot, which adds a level of sheer lunacy to how all of it is handled. Now, I'm not trying to go anywhere purient or untowards with this inclusion, but by the standards of the day when this film was made, I cannot stress to you enough how actually incredibly awkward yet tame everything you see on the screen is. To hear Norris talk about it, though, years afterwards, one would think he is having a flashback to some sort of horrific battle he was in. Filming this scene was apparently so haunting and so uncomfortable for Norris that he personally made it a point never to shoot another love scene in his career. In her 1986 article for the LA Times, titled Real Men Don't Need Kisses, author Pat H. Broski noted that Norris was in good company for the day, pointing out that both Stallone and Schwarzenegger, in their many action roles, never really had time for anything more than a quick kiss with their leading lady or even some mild flirting. They were just too busy killing folks to bother to have such moments of, quote, frivolous intimacy. Norris himself was quoted to say, After I filmed a rather heavy-duty love scene for Silent Rage, I got a lot of negative letters from fans who expressed their concerns. They don't like seeing me in a domestic role. They like me as a free spirit, not doing that steamy stuff. I'm not a Richard Gere type. My audience doesn't want me to have those kinds of heavy scenes. And besides, a lot of kids go to my movies. Look, the man was uncomfortable. I get it. But this film opens with a man swinging an axe into two people's faces. If your only concerns are about about 45 seconds of some semi-chaste antics when it comes to children viewing it, I would say perhaps you need to reevaluate some of your core positions on what is and what is not appropriate entertainment for minors. Just saying. So, how was this film received? Well, Silent Rage opened at the box office on April 2nd, 1982, to some very mixed reviews. Some critics viewed it as having its tongue embedded in its cheek, taking this as an opportunity to wink at the camera and be, quote, in on the joke with the audience. Critics like Kevin Thomas of the LA Times who thought it was witty. Others, though, wondered aloud if it was the intention to be corny on purpose, or are we just looking at a film that is what it is, a mediocre script. Some liked Norris adding his martial arts flourishes to the slasher genre, which you need to understand, slashers were glutting the box office each and every month of that time period. Knockoffs of Friday the 13th and Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, they were all just pouring out. So many felt this was refreshing, but others felt the film was just a mess. And worse, a boring mess to be had. Too many genres were colliding, and thus, since it was neither fish nor fowl, people didn't turn out in large droves to see it. By the time it had closed its run, Columbia had only earned back a disappointing $10.5 million on its 4.5 investment. According to director Miller, Norris was too polite to point out that he didn't actually care for the film he had made, but the actor was pretty much upfront about it. 
He only did this to break into working with a big studio, and now he had. For Miller, this was rather crushing. He saw this as a potential franchise, hence the ending, which had Kirby surviving to menace victims yet again. He was quite disheartened by this. He wanted sequels. Time, though, as it marches on, has a tendency to soften such harsh reactions. Silent Rage became a deep cable classic, and it was a solid video store rental for a generation of kids in the 90s, especially those who were growing up on Chuck Norris's mid-80s run as being one of the two Chucks under contract at Canon Pictures, the other of course being Charles Bronson. Kids who had been seeing things like Missing in Action, Invasion USA, and Delta Force were going back and finding Silent Rage and watching it with new eyes and a different appreciation than it initially had upon its release. Don't kid yourself, it's still a cult film at heart. Even looking at it today, at least as of 2020, this recording, it only has five full critic reviews, which while it does give it an 80% with the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a very, very different score from the audience, with only 39% of them approving. I would liken it not to being a tragedy, but just a bit of a shame. As I stated before, if one goes into this film without any expectations and looking for something fun, this movie can deliver a hell of a lot of entertainment for very, very low cost. The version of Silent Rage screened here at the LSCE was the 2003 Columbia TriStar Home Entertainment DVD release, and it does come rather bare bones. Anytime people are touting interactive menu as a feature, you know you're getting nothing. That particular version has now gone out of print, but there have been several Blu-ray releases since then, including the 2018 retro VHS-style single Blu-ray that did clean up the audio and the film transfer. But again, it comes with no real features to speak of. That said, if one were to go on Amazon, it can currently be yours for the sky-high price of $6.99, and I would say to you, for what you get to see, it is well worth the price. Now, remember folks, we here at the LSCE don't get anything for telling you where to purchase films from. We just think it's important these days to continue to support physical media so that these artists and rights holders continue to keep releasing the great content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? Getting more of what you love? Besides, this film is fun, and it truly does have something for everybody who takes it in. And isn't that something we can all use more of in these troubling times? So what are you waiting for? Go out, get yourself a copy of Silent Rage today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. This concludes our month of, wait, what? And September is going to see us kick off a completely new category. We're calling it a pulpy mess, so we hope you will tune in again. If you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, or hey, do that wherever you're listening to us on. 
swing by, check out our website, lscep.com. It's where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. Hey, feel free to like the list that we're a part of and give us a boost in those rankings. More reviews and increased likes affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable to people. And then we can share these films with more people like us. And wouldn't you want to do that? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you would like to have an even more personal interaction or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, feel free, send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please, take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. Hey, everybody. Chris Roberts here. Just wanted to slip one quick thing in. So, Silent Rage, when it was made, was going to have a special love song written for it. That's right. There was going to be a jaunty, kind of fun pop song that was going to be playing over those scenes. You know, those, quote, heavy scenes that uh, Chuck was so uncomfortable with. Yeah, they recorded a song, or at least partially did, sung by one Katie Seagal. You know, Peg Bundy herself from Married with Children, or, for you younger folks, Futurama, she was Captain Tarangalila. Yeah. She sang at least, sort of, a demo that was never used for the film. So, this is floating around out there, and we found a copy, and we thought it would be a nice way to play you out. It's a time for love just right for the both been thinking of It's a time for love Well, it's just me and you Maybe what we can do It's a time for love It's just right, it's the time for Playing for you and me There's no way to change how good it will be Let's take a chance, babe, it's not too late It's the time for love, let's not hesitate It's the time for love The mood is just right for